Um, this morning's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 21. Um, that's found on page um, 727 of the Church Bibles. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those, ta- those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand in the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, who will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and rolling it he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. When I was young, we didn't see our um, relatives all that often and so the times when we did actually see them really stick in my memory I particularly remember when we'd see my dad's brother my dad's name is Robert and my brother's name uh, his brother's name sorry is Albert so as kids we always wondered you know if dad had have had another brother what his name would have been if it would have been Herbert I remember for me when they'd come and visit I mean Uncle Bert as we called him would come to visit that it was a kind of surreal experience Not just because they had similar names, but because as a kid, I found it really strange to see this person who was both so familiar and yet so unfamiliar at the same time. You know, he looked and sounded a bit like my dad. He laughed and he moved like dad. And yet, in other ways, he was completely different. My dad loved the outdoors and and working with his hands, whereas Uncle Bert loved computers and technology and all things kind of nerdy. He was familiar, but foreign, all at the same time. Well, today, as we've seen, we continue our pop-up series, the series that we've been doing that just seems to come at random times, pop up at random times throughout the year. But the main reason we're calling it our pop-up series is because we're zoning in on 10 pop-up moments in the story of the Bible, 10 moments that are critical to understand if you're going to understand how the Bible fits together. And today we come to a moment and a character in the story 
who is both familiar and unfamiliar. Someone who sounds and acts so familiar and yet at the same time, he is someone completely unlike anyone we've seen in this story so far. So to start today, let me remind you of the story so far. So the story began with God making a good world, but then straight away it took a tragic turn when us humans introduced into this world a destructive force, a force that has spread so completely and so thoroughly into every corner of this world and into every corner of our lives that we just can't imagine what this world would be like without it. We see its destructive impact everywhere, not just in the horrible things we see in France at the moment, but also in the other horrible things that we see even in our own lives, sickness, loneliness, greed, death. But at its heart is always our exclusion of God, our refusal to let him rule as God over our world and over our lives. What we next saw in this true story is that God has a plan to remove this destructive force from his creation for good. Time and time again, as the story progresses, what we see is that God promises to reverse the effects of our rejection of him and to bring this world back to what it was meant to be. Now, the first time we heard these promises was when God said to Abram, Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and then a bit further down and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. But as the story develops, so do the promises. So when God forms the nation of Israel from Abraham's descendants, he promises them this in Exodus 19.5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then when they're secure, finally, in the promised land and David wants to build a temple for God, the promises develop again. God promises to David in 2 Samuel 7, I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. And verse 12, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. And verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The pop-up moment that we saw last time was the exile. And even in that terrible moment in Israel's history, we still hear God develop his promises to reverse the effects of the fall. Now, we're actually going to listen to what God promises life will be like after the exile. Naomi's going to come up and read for us again um, some of the promises that God gave in the prophet um, to the prophet Isaiah about what it would look like after they returned from the exile. Thanks. So reading from Isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 to 22. And if you want to follow along again, it's on page 528. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord arises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. 
Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on their arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth of the, on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing golden incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me, and the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold, to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls, and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations. The kings led up in triumphal procession. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the pine, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn the place of my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place on my feet. The sons of your oppressors will come, bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet, and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion on the Holy One of Israel. Although you have been forsaken and hated, with no one travelling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you'll know that I, the Lord, and your Saviour, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold, and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze, and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor, and righteousness your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders. But you will call your wall salvation, and your gates praise. The sun will be no, be no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. Thank you, Naomi. That's an incredible picture of Jerusalem that God paints for them there. But at the point that we're up to in this story, it looks like God's promises have failed. It doesn't look anything like what we just heard read. Um, they've come back from exile. They rebuild the temple and the old people, who can remember the old one, what do they do? They cry at how pathetic it is compared to what once was. They don't have their own king. In fact, they go from one foreign ruler to the next, from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks who treat them terribly to the Romans. And there's 500, uh, sorry, 400 years of silence from God. 
The promises, these promises that we've just heard, so many verses lining up, they're just left hanging, unanswered. And the people must be wondering, is this it? Has God finally given up on us? And then onto the stage steps someone who is incredibly familiar and yet is completely unlike anyone we've met so far in this story. Into history steps Jesus. Now the story has always been heading to this point. This is our first big point today. Everything so far has been preparing the way for Jesus. We see this in Ephesians 1 verse 9 where Paul says, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity in all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God's will, his purpose has always been for Christ to be at the center of everything. That's been his plan before the exile. It's been his plan before his promises to Abraham. It was his plan before Adam ate the fruit. It was his plan even before he said, let there be light. God's plan was that all things would be resolved, restored and united under Christ. God's not making it up as he goes along. Everything has been designed for this moment when Jesus steps into history. And this brings us to our second big point for today. Every part of the Old Testament story finds its full meaning in Jesus. Remember we said that finding Jesus in the Old Testament is not like panning for gold? Instead, we said it's like looking at a map that leads us to the gold. Every detail of every part of the Old Testament leads to Jesus. We actually see this in, in 2 Corinthians 1.20. Paul says these really important words. He says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Every promise throughout the Old Testament, every development in the story finds its yes in Jesus. The full meaning, the, the full delivery of every promise comes about through Jesus. I read this week that um, the council in, um, in the Barossa was a little bit stretched because they only got a month's notice of um, Prince Charles coming to visit. And I thought a month was actually a pretty decent amount of time to give notice. I mean, when I'm going up there, I just ring up that day and no one seems to pay any attention. If you're royalty, you can't go anywhere unannounced. Well, when Jesus turns up in history... He doesn't come unannounced. We're supposed to find him familiar. We're supposed to find him familiar for two reasons. First, because God made every key character and every key event so far in the Bible to be a pattern. They set the mold for who Jesus is and and what he will do. But the second reason Jesus is familiar is because we've already met this character. When we read of Yahweh, the Lord in the Old Testament, we're reading of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've met this character. Jesus is God the Son. As we meet Jesus, we're meeting God. 
Now, Prince Charles is pretty recognisable when you see him. Like, if you're in the, the, uh, the side of the street watching him come, you don't really need to ask the person next to you, is that him? He's kind of got features that make him stand out fairly clearly. But while Jesus seems familiar to us, he's also quite foreign to us. He's hard to recognise in some ways. And we're supposed to find him hard to recognise for two reasons also. Firstly, because while Jesus is like the Old Testament patterns set before him, he's also their fulfilment. So he exceeds them. He develops them. In a way, he he breaks the mould. And secondly, although we've met God before in the Old Testament story, we've never come close to seeing him with the clarity that we get to see in Christ. We see God face to face in the face of Christ. And this brings us to our third and final point, and it's where we're going to spend a little bit of our time today. The life of Jesus shows that he will bring about God's promises. What we're going to do is is look at how the life of Jesus brings the threads of the Old Testament together, how Jesus fulfills each pop-up moment. In the first pop-up moment, God creates humanity for relationship with him and for relationship with each other. Adam, of course, failed to live up to this role. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus is more Adam than Adam. He's the true Adam. Jesus lives perfectly towards others. And he's in perfect relationship with God. So we see this time and time again in his life. Jesus withdraws to pray to the Father. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus speaks what the Father wants him to speak and he does what God wants him to do. He's the true Adam and yet he goes far beyond Adam. He's the fulfillment of Adam because he's the head of humanity that can't fail. He's the selfless leader who represents us in exactly the way we need. That's one thread right there. The next pop-up moment is the fall. When Jesus starts his ministry, what's the very first thing that happens after he's baptised? Temptation. It's what we heard. He's tempted by the devil, just like Adam. Have a look at the verse again, Luke 4, verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to them, said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now remember, God's plan for, for Jesus has always been that he'll be at the center of everything. The devil's not offering him anything that won't soon belong to him anyway. The devil's just offering him the easy road to get it. But even though Jesus is God the Son, instead of grasping at God-likeness, Jesus gladly surrenders what is his so that he can take the path that will see evil removed from this world forever. Jesus does what Adam didn't. He trusts God and he resists the devil. You can see it there in that final verse, verse 8. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. For the first time in the history of the world, a human has faced the devil 
and one. Adam fell so easily. He was left naked and alone and afraid, banished from the garden, having introduced evil into the world. But Jesus is left standing strong. Even though he was weaker than Adam, he hadn't eaten for 40 days. It's only the first round, but Jesus wins and the devil retreats with a bruised head to regroup before the final round. Jesus is the true Adam, the man that Adam failed to be. But more than that, Jesus is the fulfillment of Adam. Because all Adam could have done is stop death from entering this world. But Jesus, in accepting the path that will lead to his own death, begins a journey that will end in the death of death itself for all time. Jesus causes life to enter the world. That's two threads. The next pop-up moment is God's promises to Abraham. So remember, as um, one of the kids just reminded us, that God promised him land, offspring, and to be a blessing to the world. Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He will bring about the true promised land. He's the true offspring of Abraham, and he is God's blessing to the world. After Jesus is tempted by the devil, what does he do? He goes on the attack. In his life, he casts out demons. He heals the sick. He calls people back to God. We often talk about Jesus' miracles like the point of them was just to show that he's someone special, to kind of prove who he was. But they were more than that. They were proof of what he's on about as well. Jesus' life illustrates the purpose of his mission. Wherever Jesus goes, he starts to reverse the fall, undo it. That's what he's on about. His miracles show that he's bringing about the Old Testament promises. Jesus wants us to see that. Uh, Look at what he does in Luke 4. Straight after his mission begins, straight after being tempted, he goes to a synagogue and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. He actually reads the very next passage on from what Naomi just read to us. And he says these words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus preaches the best sermon ever. Look at verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I don't know if he said more than that or if that was it, but what he says is remarkable. He says that they're seeing with their own eyes God's promises being fulfilled as they hear him speak. Jesus is the true son of Abraham. God is finally bringing about the ancient promises that began with Abraham. In Jesus, God is blessing the world. That's our third thread. The next pop-up moment is the exodus and the giving of the law. Do you remember when God established Israel as a nation, he showed them how he wanted them to live and he came to live with them in the tent, the tabernacle. The life of Jesus shows that he is the one true Israelite, the only one true faithful member of God's people. 
And the life of Jesus shows that he's come to call a new faithful people for God. Have you ever wondered why Jesus gathered the 12 apostles? Why not 10 or 50? Why 12? Well, he gathers 12 apostles because he's mirroring the 12 tribes of Israel. He's sending a powerful message that he is the true Israelite. And more than that, he's come to establish the true people of God. As we're connected to him, we become God's people. In the Exodus, God showed that his plan was to live with his people in the tabernacle and later the temple. In Jesus' life, he shows that he's the fulfillment of this. In Matthew 1.23, Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. In John 1.14, Jesus is said to have come and tabernacled, pitched his tent with his people. In John 2.21, Jesus calls his body his temple, the temple of God. Jesus' life shows that he's come to enable a holy God to live with an unholy people. That's our fourth thread. The next pop-up moment is God's covenant with David. Jesus spends half his ministry helping his disciples to see who he is. The life of Jesus shows that he's the Christ, the true son of David. But then Jesus spends the second half of his ministry showing that he's not the Christ that they were familiar with. The life of Jesus shows that he's the Christ who must suffer and die and rise again. The people in David's day had rejected God as their king because they wanted a human king. But no human king could lead them to where they needed to go until Jesus. The life of Jesus shows that God is giving us the king we need. A human king who understands our weaknesses and yet doesn't give in to them. A king who won't fail his people. The life of Jesus shows that he's a shepherd king who serves And lays down his life for his people. Jesus in his life shows that God himself has come to be the king of his people. That's our fifth thread and our final one, the exile. The life of Jesus shows simply that the exile is over. The silence from God is broken. God's come to us in Christ. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's come to deal with the source of the exile, to give us a new heart, to pour his spirit out on us. The life of Jesus shows how all those threads of the Old Testament come together in just one person. God is intervening to finally bring about his promises. Now next week, we'll see how he does it in in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But for now, what do we do with this pop-up moment? What do we do with the life of Jesus? What's its implications for our life? One critical thing that we must do is we must remember that all God's promises find their yes in Jesus. All of them. Which means we should know and expect and claim God's promises in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, you can see see his picture up there, He writes, God has given us no pledge which he will not redeem and encouraged no hope which he will not fulfill. 
Often where we get into trouble, though, is that we try to understand God's promises without properly connecting them to Jesus. And we can be claiming something that God has never promised or something that God doesn't promise is ours right now. Every promise from God to us is connected to Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And so if we don't understand Jesus' plan for this world and for us, then we'll be confused. And we might even end up bitterly disappointed. So often people's disappointment with God comes from thinking that God promises things to us that he doesn't. Let me give you an example. Does God promise good health, no sickness, no pain or suffering? Well, yes, he does in Christ. The life of Jesus shows that that's what he's come to bring. But knowing God's promise to us in Christ means that we know that these promises are for when Christ returns. Therefore, when Christ will fully bring about the complete removal of evil from this world. That doesn't mean God can't heal now. It doesn't mean that he won't. But it does absolutely mean this. God doesn't promise us that he will heal us now. Listen to Paul on this. It's, it's remarkable. Some people get this promise so wrong. Paul, of course, didn't. He said to the Galatians, As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Paul himself was sick. That's what first took him to the Galatians. Let me give you another example. Does God promise us material blessings, food, money and a life that's comfortable? Yes, he does in Christ. The life of Jesus shows that that's what he's come to bring. But again, knowing God's promises to us in Christ means that we know that these promises are for when Christ returns. That doesn't mean God won't bless us abundantly now, but it does mean he doesn't promise to give us a comfortable life right now. Now, I could go through this for all sorts of things. God doesn't promise we'll get happily married with two kids. God doesn't promise us a smooth life. He doesn't promise us employment. But the things that God does promise us in Christ are better than anything that we think that he should promise us. The last three pop-up moments that we'll see over the rest of this year show us actually what God's promises are in more detail. They, They give us the texture of them. They help us to know how we should expect them and how we should claim them. But let me just finish with, in very brief terms, Showing what God does promise. See, Jesus promises that those who belong to him, he'll never leave them nor forsake them. God promises that because of Jesus, nothing can separate us from his love. And because of Jesus, nothing can stop us from being brought safely to that day when God will restore all things, when he'll remove the destructive force of our rejection of God forever. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus, that his life shows that he has come to fulfill all your promises. Lord, help us to see his plan for your world and for us. 
Help us to look to Him for every promise, to realise that what you do promise us is so much better than what we think that you ought to promise us. Lord, help us to know, expect and claim our promises in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.